0: Well, good morning again. It's great to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. And as we're looking at this uh, this four-week vision series of like, what is the church? What does it mean that you and I are called the church? Let me just first start by t- saying thanks for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. And even me saying that is an indication of the fact that we believe the church is much more than just simply the room that we meet in, that kind of thing. It's the the people of God that are sent on the mission of God, empowered by, by the Spirit of God, that God has a work for us to do, and He's called us together as His church. And so it's my joy to be able to preach through this vision series. And if I've never had the opportunity to meet you, my name's Jamie. It's my just great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. So for four weeks, we began the the series last week. This is week two. We're looking at the church uh, recovered. And with that, as we kind of look at our particular mission as a church, we're going to look at four practices we think that need to be recovered if we're going to be a faithful presence in this kind of cultural moment. The reality is that The world is absent oftentimes or feels in absence. It's not that God isn't present, but sometimes feels in absence. There's darkness and we get an opportunity to bring the light of the gospel into those places to be a presence in the absences of the world. But in order to do that, I think there's some things that we need to recover, so we're going to look at this calling that we have as a church. But before we even look at the specifics of, hey, the language we use as Crosspoint in this local church, I think it's always helpful to remember that God is the one who has crafted a mission for his church. All right. Uh, The fact is the church actually exists for God's mission. Hear these words from a book called The Mission of God by Christopher Wright, this theologian. He says it this way. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, as that God has a church for his mission in the world. You hear the difference there? mission was not made for the church. The church was actually made for mission, for God's mission. And so God's mission, if we look at it big picture, Jesus tells us go and make disciples and teaching people to obey all that he's commanded. If we even go all the way back to the beginning of scriptures, we see this calling in the Garden of Eden to our original parents to be fruitful and multiply, to take the presence that they enjoy, this presence that got to be in the presence of God and see that presence pushed out into the darkness, into the chaos, to make things more orderly, to be not these inanimate objects, but living image bearers to showcase this is what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of our God who gives us everything. And so that's our calling here. All right. It's that God, I think this is key, has a church for his mission. All right we're not the, the end goal. At the end of the day, is like, hey, he's got this particular mission is for people to enjoy his presence, to be in the presence of God, to be now reunited with him after sin and the fall and all of that. And so some of the language we use at Crosspoint, here's what we're building this series around. It's sort of unpacking our mission, is pointing our community to Jesus, all right? We will always come back to Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We love Jesus. We worship Jesus. We preach Jesus, not just from a stage, but in everything that we do, the call is to proclaim, Jesus and the results or the outcomes we hope in that is that people would actually know God that they would experience the presence of God that they would have this relationship with Him, that they would find freedom we're going to unpack that here this morning that they would experience belonging we'll look at that next week and the last week this idea that we would be about this work of seeking renewal that we all have a part to play and so the four weeks, we looked last week at this calling to know God and the recovery we needed was to recover our confession, to not lose the gospel, to make sure that that is front and center, that it is central to everything. And so we looked at recovering our confession. What is it fundamentally that we believe as the church? And this morning, we wanna look at this idea of finding freedom. We want people, we want for ourselves and out in the community to actually experience the, the freedom that God has for them in and through this gospel. As we recover this confession, but here's the interesting thing, and if you can see the, the language here, what I believe we need to recover in order to find freedom, and this is sort of counterintuitive, is we actually need to recover our dependence. And that very notion is antithetical to what is communicated, what you and I are bombarded with every single day. Because here's the reality, the culture loves freedom. You hear it all the time. Just pay attention this upcoming week, how often you hear a narrative about you being true to yourself, you finding freedom, you do what makes you happy, you do what, what satisfies. It's up to you. Carve out your identity. And yet the Christian message comes along and says, there's a freedom that the world knows nothing of, that you and I were created for, but it doesn't come when we throw off every single restraint. It actually comes when we come under the right restrictions, the right limitations, the right restraint, and it's in that that we actually find freedom. It's a silly analogy, but I think it works and I think it's helpful, right? Like you go fishing and you take a fish out of water and you put him on dry land and he's flopping around. You're like, you're free, little buddy, you're free. It's like, no, 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 he needs the restrictions, the limitations, the water in order to flourish and our culture has gone and said you just need to be extracted from all sorts of limitations all sorts of restrictions don't be bound to anything or anyone you do you and in that you'll find freedom And you're like no, no no like a fish flopping on the dry land it will lead to death destruction to chaos so we want to talk about this idea as we get into it this morning to unpack what do we mean what does the bible mean what does jesus mean by freedom how do we recover our dependence upon god been reading through a new book uh, this week by pastor uh, and author, Mark Sayers. It's called The Reappearing Church, all right? I quoted from his other book last week called The Disappearing Church. The follow-up is The Reappearing Church, all right? So uh, it's been a fascinating, a helpful, encouraging read. And in it, he uses this, this imagery. And so this will kind of help us understand the world that we live in he says in order to have a flourishing life there's numerous things that that we need as as humanity and so kind of three big ones these are not the only three but if you think of sort of these rain barrels right all right so rain comes off like through the gutters and it begins to fill these these barrels and there's an output all right so you can water your garden or do whatever it is that you want to do some of you know gardening i don't but in theory that's how these things work okay and it's this system and what we ultimately are created for is this intake of the presence of God, and then that output in our life. It results in beautiful things flourishing. And he says some of the things that we actually need. All right, we actually do need freedom. We're pro freedom. All right, not just pol- in the political sense, but, but also like if you are constantly like unable to actually make decisions for yourself, there's like you're under some sort of totalitarian like regime. Like we would understand how no, freedom is a good thing. Don't always tell us what to do. We need. From freedom. And so that's good. But we are also created for meaning, for purpose. We're also created for relationships. And what he begins to unpack, and I think this is spot on, is just a description of our culture, is the freedom barrel is overflowing. The freedom barrel has all of this intake, it's constantly being filled to the neglect. So these reservoirs of meaning and relationship, these barrels are bone dry because everything is getting dumped into the freedom barrel. And so pay attention this week. You will see that word, that narrative constantly. And what it does is it doesn't actually cause freedom. The whole system is out of whack. Here's what he says I think it begins to lead to. Look at this this quote from this book in light of that tank sort of imagery. He says, the individual then receives constant messaging. So this is what you and I are up against all the time. From the culture that to be happy and content, we need to increase our input of freedom. Releasing more freedom into our already overflowing tank of freedom would not solve the problems created in our system by our low reserves of meaning and the relational. Just buying more stuff and consuming more experiences cannot fill these gaps. Our tanks of freedom are overflowing. They're bursting at the seams. And yet our tanks of meaning and the relational are dry and empty. It begins to talk about some of the implications of this. Do you feel this in your life and in your neighbors as you experience? Maybe some of you like, Putting kids back in school this week. I believe this description he gives them of some of the results of this are spot on. He says, The output then of such a lopsided system is isolation and an increasing mental health crisis of escalating levels of depression and anxiety. The expansion of choice, anxiety, information overload has created an endless sense of confusion and lostness, leading many to recoil from making any forward steps in fear of making the wrong decision. For many especially in emerging generations, a sense of paralysis has become the norm. I think we feel that on varying degrees, on a spectrum. I think we can all relate to that. I can relate to that. And it's because we keep pumping the barrel full. I need more freedom. When we talk about finding freedom, we're not talking about no limitations the way the world talks about it. If we would embrace the way the world talks about freedom, as Sayers is describing, really what you end up having is a reality that we're actually enslaved to that kind of freedom. And it's no freedom at all. But what does it look like to embrace the good news that Jesus came to offer, to take up his yoke, to, follow, you know, to take up, like to come under his yoke, to come under his authority, to not throw off all restraint, but to come under the right sort of restraint, the right sort of limitation, to have the right Lord. Instead of you and I sitting on the throne making a mess of things, we come under the lordship of King Jesus. We submit to him and we say, you know best. You've created everything. I've been made to be in your presence, to enjoy that relationship. That's what we're talking about when we say we find freedom. And so to help us sort of unpack that this morning, to understand that, I want to look at this parable in Luke chapter 18, all right? It's a well-known parable. We have a few short verses here of the Prayers that are offered by the Pharisee and the tax collector. So, if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't, a couple of options because we want you to have this in front of you. There are paperback Bibles on the two back tables in the back. At any point, you can get up, grab one of those, and you can per- turn to page 972. Or you can get your phone out, device, go to cpwp.life. If you swipe over the second card, it says message notes. The text will be listed there. Information that's on the slides is there. There's a way to take notes. You can email them to yourself afterwards if there's insights, things that you want to you contemplate more later. would encourage you to take advantage of that. So I want to go ahead and read Luke 18, 9 to 14. And as I read God's word, if you're able, would you go ahead and stand as I read God's word this morning? Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector. It says, he also, so this is a series of different teachings and things that Jesus is calling out. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men, verse 10, it says, went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what I want to do this morning is look at this text and help us see, like, it unpacks for us what dependence looks like. You have a contrast, again, we looked at a contrast last week between the younger brother and the older brother in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. This morning, we're looking at another contrast here between the Pharisee and the tax collector. What is their approach? We're going to look at what their posture is. But right away in verse 9, Jesus calls attention to a problem that exists, not just for the people that are gathered there, but the problem is here this morning. It's in your heart. It's in this room. It's on this stage. It's in my heart. It is all around us. It's in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, amongst your friends, your family, your coworkers, the people you're in relationship with, the people you like and the people you dislike. Every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth and will in the future has dealt with this problem. And here's how he lays it out in verse nine. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. So there's this disposition of the human heart to constantly want to default into, I can make a name for myself. I can do it. I'm going to trust in myself. I'll get this figured out. So he told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then treated others with contempt. And there's this unfortunate thing that begins to happen that even though we might think it would never happen to us, when we begin to get some level of success, when we have a certain area of life that we feel like we're pretty proficient in or we're pretty dominant in, we think we've got that on lockdown, maybe not some other things, but we got this thing, we begin to view life through that particular lens. And then anybody who doesn't quite measure up, there's this contempt. I mean, there's an actual scorn. It's this dismissive nature toward other people. And we're going to see this in this parable, that that's what is happening with the Pharisee. But unless we enter into the story, it will be easy for us to sort of say, oh, that terrible Pharisee, all right, and almost end up praying exactly like he prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like one of the Pharisees. And we're just repeating the same sort of problem. And so what is being called out here, and I've highlighted this, this word, it's in bold there, they trust themselves that they were righteous, There might be a tendency to sort of move past that, all right? Or maybe to think, well, I don't walk around thinking I'm righteous if you're equating that with like perfection or absolute holiness. But what we are all guilty of is this pursuit of righteousness in this sense. What Jesus is calling out is there's this hunger, there's this longing in the human heart for approval, to be told that you do measure up, that you're enough, all of that. And because that's in our heart, we're constantly then on this self-salvation project so we could actually trust in ourselves. If we could just get enough people or have enough acclaim or get enough degrees or have enough money or buy this or go on this trip or do whatever it happens to be, we're in this constant pursuit of righteousness, this constant pursuit of approval. And if we're going to find freedom, we have to realize like we can't depend on ourselves for approval. We will never actually arrive. We have to depend on God and his grace but the human heart is always going out looking for it one of my favorite sports movies. I've referenced this a few years ago, but I think it's a good illustration and drives at the, this point. One of my favorite sports movies, aside from the fact that the, the kid in the, the movie is hoping to make the Notre Dame football team, I'm a Michigan fan, so I have to despise Notre Dame. But aside from that, right, um, there is this longing. The movie is Rudy. If you've seen the, this movie, if you haven't, like when you get home today, you go and, go and watch that. That's your homework, okay? Um, but in this particular movie, you have um, this young man who's family they just grew up every saturday around the television like Rooting for the fighting Irish and it was like the ultimate to actually think that maybe someday one could actually play for the fighting Irish And so Rudy ends up making his way if you know this story He ends up making his way to the University of Notre Dame eventually gets accepted gets on the practice squad All right, but his goal is every single week He goes to look at the list to see if the coach has put him on the list where he would actually dress for a game No guarantee that he'd even get in the game But he would get to put the uniform on he would get to run out through the tunnel run onto the field hear the second best fight song in the land because we know what the best one is all right and so um all of that like that would be what he would be like just so enamored with that is his lifelong dream and goal and week after week after week the list comes and the coach makes the declaration and he's not on the list and his heart each week just gets beat down a little bit more and though he tries to give all of his effort he eventually gets to the point where he's just like i just quit And there's this caretaker of the field and facilities that he's developed a relationship with. And this caretaker finds him one day just kind of looking out over the field. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, you're supposed to be a practice right now. And he's like, I'm not supposed to be a practice. I quit. And they have this dialogue about what is driving him. And there's these words that Rudy says to his friend. And this gets at the idea of righteousness, what we're longing for. He says, I just wanted to run out of that tunnel to prove that I was Somebody. All I wanted was that one moment to run out of the tunnel and prove that I was somebody. And the particulars of that story are not the particulars, you know, of your story and of my story necessarily, but the longing of the human heart to have this sense of righteousness, of enoughness, of approval. I want to know that I'm somebody. It exists in all of us. And the default then of the human heart is to try and take matters into our own hands and to try and then carve out a life where I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to make a name for myself. And the invitation of Jesus is to, in fact, stop striving. It doesn't mean don't give any sort of effort, all right, but to actually start abiding Jesus speaks these words in John 8, 31 to 33. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, in this gospel, in this good news, if you are dependent upon me, Jesus says. In John 15, he uses this language of abide as well, where Jesus, all right, he's the vine, where the branches abide in him. That's complete dependence. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's not the truth, just generic truth. It's the truth of who we are in Jesus. Jesus and who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And they answered him, and this is so interesting to me. The Jews look and they say, hey, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? it doesn't resonate with them that they're actually enslaved. Their eyes have been blind to the fact that they've been on this project of trying to save themselves. And my prayer this week for all of us is that the spirit would do a work to open our eyes to see the ways in which we're continuing to try and run out the tunnel and prove that we're somebody. And when we have that mindset, we are not experiencing the freedom that God has for us. We're being dependent upon ourselves rather than dependent on God. And it leads to not freedom, but to enslavement. It leads to chains, it leads to misery. It leads to a life that spirals towards chaos. And so let's look at the particulars for a moment then of what we see in these prayers, all right? The posture that is evident. Look back with me as we're introduced to the Pharisee first and then the tax collector. And so a couple things need to keep in mind with this. I think there's a default today to sometimes say hey, a Pharisee, yeah, they're kind of hypocritical. That's not actually what this is about. Because a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and then does something different. The Pharisees were the most esteemed people in that culture. They were the ones who had a really good track record. They did many of the right things things, all right? We're going we're gonna to see that. We're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount after this particular series, and you're going to see what Jesus is contrasting. It's not a bunch of people doing the wrong thing. It's people that are doing the right things, but for the wrong motivations. They're not dealing with the inside. They're just about the external, the behavior modification. But these people had it on lockdown. If you're like, who's a good moral upstanding person? Who, you know, do you want to kind of like imitate in that regard? It'd be like, well, the Pharisees. It was like the highest calling. So we look at this sometimes with a negative lens, and rightly so in some ways. But back then, this was like, no, to be a Pharisee. And so when Jesus tells this, and like, oh, there's a Pharisee praying, everybody's dialed in, they're paying attention. Like, oh yeah, what are we gonna learn about prayer from the Pharisee? Because they have things figured out. And yet, let's look at it. Verse 11, the Pharisee who's standing by himself prayed thus God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. On the one hand, he could be commended, he gives generously. He fasts, there was a call to fast, but he does it twice a week. So now he's even up in the game. He's like, God, I know you, you call this to this and it's kind of in the realm of like, when you fast, but not specific commands around when to do it. But he's like, I've even taken the law a step further and I'm going to do it twice a week. He's actually tells us he's a good husband in that day and age where oftentimes in the Roman culture, it was sort of just a given that men were gonna commit adultery. All right, he's like, no, I haven't done that. I'm not giving in to the pressures of the culture. So he's a good husband, he's a generous man, all these things, he's not unjust. And so, so far so good, like a good resume. But the problem is this, it's not with his behavior so much as what the focus is. Did you catch it in this? In five different occasions, he says, I. I this, and I that, and I didn't do this. It is a prayer, it's a self-congratulatory prayer. Prayer. There's even a note, and this is fascinating. Commentators haven't quite known what to do with it, but a lot of Bibles, like, so if you're, I know the one I'm looking at right here, says standing by himself. So he's sort of separating himself. He's maybe moving up to a place of prominence. And then in verse four, there's this little note. that says, prayed thus. As I look down here, it says, or it can mean standing, prayed to himself. So he starts out with God. And then functionally what this is, is a prayer of worship and celebration to himself. Now, Maybe you don't have that sort of brazenness or boldness, but let's be honest, in your heart of hearts, when your mind just wanders to things, how often are we replaying sort of a narrative of how we're the hero of the story? Look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. Are you and I self-congratulatory? And if we wonder why the church is oftentimes impotent to have any sort of effect in the culture, it's because increasingly there's people, myself included in this, who are relying on themselves, not dependent upon God, And it leads to something, it's not winsome at all. It's just like the rest of the world. Uh, John Miller, Jack Miller in his book on repentance says it this way. People are sick and tired of role players and plastic goods, slickly turned out and calculated to deceive. Therefore, if we wish to be effective, he says, we must see that our own Pharisaic pretense will eventually be discovered by the people we meet and rebuked by our own consciences. But even more important, he says, the Holy Spirit himself is deeply grieved, weeps holy tears over our religious fakery and instructs us in a better way by the path of renewal through sincere repentance. The Pharisee, there's no sincere repentance. There's no confession of the need that he has. He feels pretty good about himself. We live in a culture in and around this place with lots of success, lots of independence, lots of I did it, look at the name that I've made for myself. One of the biggest challenges to doing mission in this context is we're trying to tell people about a God they don't think they actually need. And until you and I start actually admitting that we have great need and demonstrating that and showcasing that and that sort of dependence, we will never be effective inviting other people to examine their life and their need. There's this default that happens to be like the Pharisee. Look what I've done, I this, I this, I this. But the contrast, and as Miller talks about here, the path of renewals through sincere repentance, that is what we get with the tax collector. Now we have to be careful because even that idea has all sorts of weird connotations down through church history. We're talking repentance, we're not talking penance. Sort of this, you gotta grovel, it's another. Penance is again focused on the self. I'm gonna earn the forgiveness of God. That doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, there can be this kind of slippery slope that we get into and we begin to think even that is up to us. Here's a couple ways you might know that you're slipping into not true repentance but a counterfeit. One is this, when you do the wrong thing, which we all do, do you have remorse? Now, remorse in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but here's sometimes what remorse does. Here's the the word choice, here's the narrative that gets used. Whether you verbalize it or not, here's what we think. Remorse is, I can't believe I did that. Where's the focus again? It's on me. I'm a better person. This I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I slipped up. Must have been circumstances. Must have been this or that or these other people. I can't believe I did that. That's remorse. That's not repentance. And then the other side of the coin that sometimes follows with this is what I would say is sort of a resolution or resolve. I promise I will never do that again. I can't believe I did that. And now I promise that I will never do it again. Now, True repentance, there is a turning. It means to move in a new direction, to move away from those things. But in just this sort of remorse and resolution, the focus is on me. I can't believe I'm a better person, and I will prove to the world that I have what it takes to never, ever, ever do that again. Let me ask you, follower of Jesus, how's that working for you? It's working terribly for me. Like when I try to make those promises, it's not, but... A matter of minutes or days oftentimes where I'm like, I'm back into some of the same pattern because I'm trying to do it in my own strength. It tells us the tax collector, though, look at the difference. Look at the posture. Standing far off, not wanting to be, to be seen. He's standing far off. He knows, because they're at the temple, all right? This is the place where the presence of God is. And when you come up against the presence of God, what it should do is not fill you with self-esteem and ego and look at me, but it should weigh on us or it would humble us. This is the posture of humility. Standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes, it says, to the heaven. So he's, he's looking down. And he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. Now, what you see on the screen, it says the sinner. In the Bible, it says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But the more accurate translation of this is actually, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In this man's world, it's not a comparison. He's not seeing the other people. He just knows I'm the sinner. I have messed up. I have fallen short because a tax collector... If we went from the Pharisee now out of the tax collector, they were the, most, they were the most despised in that culture. They were the sellouts. They were fellow Jews who said, we're going to use extortion. We're going to use just abusive policies, all right, to get taxes, to get money from our fellow Jews to give to the Romans. And as much as we can take, all right, like if we overcharge off the top like we can actually keep that for ourselves they were the scum of the earth it would be impossible to try and find in that day and age somebody more lowly than the tax collector and so he's coming to grips with that reality he's not like I'm a sinner I want to think that I'm a sinner like you're a sinner and we're kind of all sinners together but rather he's zeros all all that's kind of pushed to the sides like no I'm the sinner Do you and I have that posture? This is what Paul would say as he's writing to young Timothy, instructing him in the gospel in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17. Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's like, this should be embraced by everybody, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the mission of God. If we want to recover what it means to be the church, God has a church for his mission to be about pointing people to this Jesus that came to save sinners and Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. Now, did that mean that Paul, as he grew in his relationship with Jesus, was finding new ways to break the commandments and was just like, woo grace, I'm gonna do whatever I want. No, that wasn't the apostle Paul. But he understood how deeply the problem went. So even when his external behavior looked right, and Paul was Pharisee of Pharisees, he also knew that there was a deeper problem beneath the surface. There's a heart issue. And so he can say this, but I'm the foremost but then look at this. He says, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know, this is good news for you and I, because Paul is through the spirit looking on ahead into the future of the church and saying, my story will bring encouragement because I persecuted the church. I helped like officiate over the stoning of Stephen to kill him. I was on a mission to stop the church. I was a horrible person. I was doing all of these things that were antithetical to the mission of the church and to Jesus until Jesus came and met me and I experienced the presence and the grace of God. He's like, if God can save me, he can do a work of mercy in your life. And all of it is meant to be What? He ends in sort of doxology. I love this. He's in the first chapter, all right, of this letter. And he's just, I got to stop. To the king of kings, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. And then he keeps writing some more, right? But he just has to stop there because he's like, I'm the chief of sinners. Jesus demonstrated his mercy. Let's worship God. That's his posture. That's the posture that we're seeing from the tax collector. He's like, I have to throw myself at the mercy of God. It's not self-congratulatory. It's not, I did this and I did this. It's, I'm the sinner. Now, there's a humility there. There's an honesty there. And another question for us as the church, is that reflective? Like, is that how we are? Do we see ourselves that way? And as I read this earlier, it tells us though, that man, meaning the tax collector, went home justified. That man went, with the approval of God. That man went with a right standing, is this idea of justified. Nothing left to prove. How in the world did he get that? And 13 to 14 give us this clue. Certainly it involves a confession of sin. Certainly it involves this this crying out to God, God, I've gone and tried to do it in my own way. Because the tax collector really was doing that. He was trying to make a name for himself, sort of I'm gonna find freedom by doing what I want forget my fellow Jew, forget my neighbor, forget this community, I'm gonna get mine. And yet it leads to this place of deep unrest and unhappiness. And so there's a clue we get in this text that would point us forward to the work that Jesus is going to do, that there's this provision, I'd say there's this promise then in the ways that verse 14 ends. But we see this provision, if you look with me again at, at verse 13, there's this really interesting word, it tells us as he cries out in verse 13, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's crying, God, be merciful. Now, there's a normal word that could have been used here for mercy, but that's not the word as Jesus tells the story that gets used. This helasterion, all right, is this word that is used. And it's a very unique word. It's not the normal word for mercy. It's this idea that can be translated as atonement or propitiation, He's saying, God, the idea of propitiation is this. Have your wrath satisfied and will you turn it to favor? That's my only hope. I throw myself on the mercy of God that the wrath somehow might be satisfied. I know I'm deserving of wrath. I know I'm deserving of condemnation. Look at my track record. I don't, I've done the wrong thing. And somehow can, through your mercy and grace, can it be turned to actual favor? This word mercy shows up in the description of what is called the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. And once a year, it's in the Holy of Holies, the high priest was allowed to go in and offer a sacrifice for what? For the propitiation of the sins of the people as this representative. That was the only one that could enter in. In that temple that he stood outside of once a year, he would have longed for this person to go in and to make this particular sacrifice there on the mercy seat. That is what he needed. And this word here, this is why there's justification. This is why he can go home justified. It's because in God's grace and in God's provision, he sent his son on this rescue mission to be this propitiation, to be the one who would be sacrificed this perfect high priest who would enter in and not only be the high priest, but also be the sacrifice, so that he would do away with all future sacrifices. That's what Hebrews 2:17 speaks of. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 3, 23 to 26. He says, Hey, just so you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, everybody, regardless of economic standing, regardless of personality, regardless of anything that we might use to sort of define us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by what? Are made right by what? His grace as a gift through the redemption, through this purchase to set us free, to liberate us that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. A sacrifice put forward to satisfy the wrath of God and then turn it to favor for us by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show, and this is so beautiful, God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd pass over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. This is what it means. Sin had to be punished. God would cease to be just if he just overlooked it, said, eh, no big deal, come and be in my presence. No, he had to punish sin. He was just, but he also became it says, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just in punishing sin. Jesus had to punish sin, but he's our justifier. He was glad to be the propitiation. He was glad to die for you. What the Pharisee cried out for, be merciful to me. I need something to satisfy the wrath of God. I need to be free from all the expectations, all the things of trying to save myself. God, I cast myself upon your mercy. And God says he went home justified because the promise is there where he tells us in verse 14. He says to him, all right, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This man humbled himself and had an invitation to experience the presence of God, to stop taking matters into his own hands, to cry out to God. What he needed to be filled with, what the reservoir that he needed to have filled in his life is an intake of the presence of God, the love of God, to know that he's been pursued by the God of the universe, that the God of the universe would send his son to make this propitiation. He didn't need more intake of freedom. You and I don't need more intake of freedom. Just, hey, we just give us a little bit more time, give us a little bit more independence and we'll surely figure this out. No, we need the mercy of God. And so here's what I wanna ask us and I wanna invite us into this. Will we have that sort of humility? Will we cry out this morning Will we cry out in the days and weeks ahead? Will we be a church that is known for crying out that we are not independent people, but we are completely dependent on the grace and the mercy of God? That we don't wake up in the morning thinking, first and foremost, what am I going to do? But rather, God, what do you have for me to do? Thank you for the abilities you've given me, but I'm completely dependent on you. I've never earned anything in my life. Everything is a gift from the Father above. Do you and I live with that sort of posture and that sort of dependence? Here's what I want. Like we're talking through this, the church recovered. I wanna see a movement of renewal in our community, in our church. We wanna see the gospel go forward. We wanna see more people worshiping Jesus, more people enjoying the presence of God, more people experiencing this sort of freedom and belonging and being about this work of renewal. Like we want to see that in our time and our place and we pray and we beg and we ask God to do it as only he can. But before there's going to be any sort of renewal out in the community, all right, there has to be a renewal in your heart and in my heart. There has to be an awakening to the fact that I can't do it. I've tried to do things in my own strength and it's exhausting. And Jesus invites those who are weary, those who are heavy hearted, and he just says, come and find your rest in me. Submit to him and actually find life. And so... We're going to do something a little bit different uh, this morning over the next few minutes. Normally, I kind of close in prayer and give you a moment to reflect, but I want to have a little bit of an extended time of reflection in prayer. And so I'm going to open us in a moment. There's going to be a series of things. This is for you just silently to, to pray, but I want to invite you to do a couple things. For one, you can just stay seated, all right? Also though... If you're like, hey, I need somebody to pray for me during this time, there'll be members of our prayer team in the back corners. At any point you can get up and go, they'll be there throughout the rest of the service. Maybe for you, you just need to move to the side of the room. Maybe you need to sit somewhere else and you just wanna pray. Maybe you need to get down on your knees. I don't know what it is. There's no right or wrong way to do this. You can sit in your seat, but I am gonna lead us in a time and there'll be different prayer sort of prompts up on, on the screen. If you're like, well, can I look at the screen? Can I open my eyes in prayer? Yes, just breathe. It's okay, right? But will you and I cry out? So I'm gonna give us some instruction. We're just gonna take about a minute for each of these. I wanna invite the Spirit. The Spirit is here with us, but we wanna open ourselves up and say, we are dependent and we are needy people. Again, so if you need somebody to pray for you, go and seek that out. But take this time right now. Let's confess, let's cry out to God. So I'll put this, this is how it's going to go. This is what it'll look like on the screen. want to spend some time acknowledging, confessing the ways that you've tried to find freedom independent of God rather than dependence of, on God and his will. One last bit as I start in prayer. After this, you'll have an opportunity to go if you've got kids in elementary, but don't do it now. All right, so let me lead us in, in prayer. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and I'll give you a moment here. Father, We thank you that by your grace, you invite us in, that we have an opportunity to pray to you as our heavenly father. And so I pray that you would hear our prayers now, God, that as we as your people, let us now acknowledge and confess the ways that we have tried to find freedom, independence of God, making the story about us rather than independence on you and your will and your provision. God, hear the prayers of your people now. continue to pray spend some time now acknowledging and confessing how you've sought to justify yourself to what things have you looked to for righteousness and confess these things to the lord he already knows them but he wants you to confess them to be free from them confess before the lord how you've sought to prove that you were somebody rather than looking to the finished work of jesus As you continue to pray and you think through those things, I think it's important for us to stop and to acknowledge and to confess that that our attitudes and our actions, they have actually grieved the heart of God. So where you can be specific with that, confess before the Lord the ways that you've grieved him, that realize that it's your sin that put Jesus on that cross. of the great lies of the enemy is to get us to believe that what we do only has implications for us let's just spend some time acknowledging confessing not only how our sins our attitudes how it's grieved the heart of God but how our actions and our attitudes have been detrimental to others that we've brought more chaos into the lives of other people that we've not brought the presence of God but rather we have we've brought this chaos and this disorder of the enemy So confess that now. And as we think about calling as a church to where we're called to put on display what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God we confess God that we haven't done that and so we want to spend a few moments now just acknowledging and confessing the ways that our attitudes and actions they've actually hurt the witness of the church in our community so God we are sorry for that we grieve that spend some time confessing that the way that may be a pharisaical attitude has not borne witness in the community to the grace and the mercy of our God. we would be terribly remiss if we did not stop and thank you that though we are indeed sinners you are a great great savior that you have rescued us that you have redeemed us as colossians 1 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption The forgiveness of sins. Take a moment now, Christian, and confess and thank the Lord for the mercy that you've received. you are so kind you are so good to us we deserve condemnation we deserve your wrath and we are just so incredibly thankful that we could find mercy through Jesus's life death and resurrection we stop and we give you praise for that we want to cry out not just in confession and repentance but we want to cry out in worship we wanna thank you for what you've done. God, we pray as we continue in our service through, through worship and through giving and through this meal that you've given to us as a means of your grace, God, that you would encourage us as your people, that we would have a clear sense of what we are called to as the church, that we would be a community of people that are more and more realizing our utter, our sheer and utter dependence upon you. We cannot do it in our own strength. We need your spirit. We need you to come. We need you to sustain us moment by moment. We thank you, Jesus, that you literally are upholding everything right now. The breath that we just took, everything is by your grace and your provision. So we give you praise for that. We want to experience more of your presence. We want to find the freedom that you offer in the gospel. And so God, we ask that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, not only now as we continue in our worship service, but. God, as we go out and as we live our lives individually but collectively as the church, and we pray in that, God, that you would give us a great sense of joy as we become more aware of our dependence upon you. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.